Hi, I'm Michelle Shepard, host of Uncover Charmini from CBC Podcasts. In 1999, 15-year-old Charmini Anandavel disappeared on her way to a job that police believed didn't exist. Four months later, her remains were found in a wooded ravine. I revisit the case that has stayed with me for over 20 years, ever since I first covered it as a cub crime reporter for the Toronto Star. You can find Uncover Charmini on CBC Listen or on your favourite podcast app. This is a CBC Podcast. Hello, I'm Neil Kirksall. And I'm Chris Howden. This is As It Happens, the podcast edition. Tonight. The picture of health. A former critical care physician in Alberta explains why he's so critical of the province's new plan to restructure its health care system. Separation anxiety. You still can't legally get divorced in the Philippines, but our guest tells us that now there's more hope than ever the law will finally change. Vote of confidence. After her election victory yesterday, Danica Rome is set to become the first openly trans state senator in the American South. But she tells us it was the issues, not her gender identity, that voters cared most about. Wearing his heart on his sleeve. Well, somewhere on his top. Neil talks to Governor General's Literary Award winner Hannah Green and her father, who's internet famous for turning up at her book launch in a shirt that read, Hannah's Dad. Even in space, you have to check your bags. While on a spacewalk, two astronauts accidentally let go of a tool bag. So if you have a telescope, you can see that bag orbiting right alongside the ISS. And for folks' sake... We'll talk to a man who has spent six decades documenting Britain's oldest and oddest folk traditions, from the Straw Bear Festival to the famous Gloucestershire cheese roll. As it happens, the Wednesday edition, radio that keeps a close eye on Big Parma. If you live in Alberta and you go to the emergency room, you might wait hours to be treated. And you might only be at the ER because you don't have a family doctor, like hundreds of thousands of people in the province. Premier Danielle Smith says she knows the reason the healthcare system is failing so many Albertans, bureaucracy. So she's dismantling Alberta's single-service provider, Alberta Health Services, and spreading its responsibilities to several new organizations. Without a doubt, we have the best healthcare workers in the country. They're smart, skilled, endlessly compassionate people who understand their patients and their practice. And yet when they are sidelined when it comes to decision making, even though they understand the problems and see obvious solutions, they try their best, but they end up being stalled and frustrated by a system that lacks focused leadership and governance. The current health system in our province limits government's ability to provide system-wide oversight on behalf of the people of Alberta. It also limits our ability to set priorities and require accountability for meeting them. The current Alberta health care system is one that has forgotten who should be at the center of its existence, patients and the health care experts who look after them. Alberta Premier Danielle Smith. Dr. Tom Noseworthy is a professor emeritus at the University of Calgary. He's also a former critical care physician and hospital administrator. We reached him in Banff, Alberta. Dr. Noseworthy, you heard the premier there. She says Alberta's healthcare system has forgotten about patients. Has it, in your view? Absolutely not. I think when she says it lacks focused leadership and governance, the government should be looking at themselves, frankly. What 
would help in, in your view? Because they've said they've had consultations with frontline workers, but what would you have preferred to hear from her? I think it's nonsense to say that they've had conversations with frontline workers other than politically chosen individuals that tell them what they want to hear back. I'm at a national conference here today, and amongst many individuals from healthcare in Alberta, some at high level, some regular workers. All of this came to them from the press release today and the leak to Twitter yesterday. It is abominable nonsense to say that anybody has been consulted. That is simply not true. You're angry. I am definitely angry because tearing down this system after 15 years of hard work to put it together is really an abomination. What about the the folks you're there at that conference with? What have they been telling you? There's a lot of people hurting today for sure because of the uncertainties that will happen. Uh, Remember, this system was blown up by a government just like this 15 years ago without any notice whatsoever, and the same thing is happening yet again. And I certainly am not going to stand in front of you and say that Alberta Health Services uh, has no problems. But the Premier just said we have the best health care workers in the country. I actually would agree, but I also think that now we've struggled to become the best health care system in the country, and now it's going to be taken away And that really disturbs me. She says that it's going to be restructured and there'll be four new organizations to deliver primary care, acute care, continuing care, and then mental health and addiction care. Won't that make things more focused, targeted, um, nimble and flexible? Well, let me turn it back to you. What is it, in fact, replacing? It's replacing a single governance and delivery system for the province which is now being copied by three other provinces. And it has finally achieved a level of integration. And now we're expected to believe that four politically chosen individual boards will result in more integration. I really don't think that's true. How do you think patients will be impacted by this or people using the system? Well, let's just watch and see what's going to happen over the next few months. And don't take it from me. Just Let's just watch. Watch the political appointees made to these boards. Watch the costs go out of control from things like not just the restructuring, but, but from pain severance. Watch the loss of talent that leaves immediately because they can't stand it. And watch the loss of integration. Uh, I just think that what has been proposed has no merit. In your experience, I just want to zoom in on one thing that you said, that loss of integration. How can that play out and and potentially hurt a patient, in your view, from your experience? Well, as it stands right now, uh, there's one board of governance, which in fact was disbanded a year ago and replaced by a public administrator, which is the ultimate form of government interference. But at least there was one decision-making body that had uh, the accountability to integrate care. So let's just imagine for now that I'm an individual that's beginning to develop mental health problems. Population and public health will be in Alberta Health, and so prevention is one place. If I'm so unfortunate as to need any kind of care, primary care and community care is in another place. If I have to be admitted to hospital is in the acute care system, that's a completely different other place. And then if I'm discharged from hospital into a continuing care environment, that's another board itself. 
it's really hard for me to see how I could shoot an integration arrow through that four set of boards and be better off than I am now. There's no question Alberta Health Services needs improvement and it needs to be uh, refreshed, but tearing it down and replacing it this way is unforgivable. What would what would have been a better decision from the Premier today? To recognize the bumps and warts of Alberta Health Services, to recognize the deficiencies, quite frankly, and to work at improving what we already have rather than replacing it completely. And just remember, Alberta Health Services today got blamed for all kinds of things in primary care and community-based care and continuing care. Those things are not even inside of Alberta Health Services. So that, you know, that was a fast-talking, media-savvy smokescreen that shifted the blame, and it's unfortunate. Who is to blame for those things, then? This government is to blame. It disbanded the board a year ago and put in an official administrator. So if you're a senior-level management person in AHS, you've had your hands tied, and you have repetitive phone calls from Alberta Health telling you what to do. That's what's wrong with this system. Too much government interference, not letting the people that know what they need to do get on with it. If they screw up, then they should be held accountable. But show me the evidence that they've screwed up, because it simply doesn't exist. Dr. Noseworthy, I appreciate your time. My pleasure, and thank you for asking. Bye for now. Dr. Tom Noseworthy is a professor emeritus at the University of Calgary. He's in Banff, Alberta. Democrats had a good night in off-year U.S. elections last night, including in Virginia, where they secured full control of the state legislature. That win throws a wrench in the legislative agenda of Republican Governor Glenn Youngkin, including his proposed 15-week abortion ban. Among those elected last night was Danica Rome, who will become the state's first ever openly trans state senator. Ms. Rome has already been elected three times to Virginia's House of Delegates. She also worked as a reporter covering state politics for over a decade and fronted the thrash metal band Cab Ride Home. We reached state senator-elect Danica Rome in Manassas, Virginia. Senator-elect, you certainly made some history last night. So how does it feel to be the first member of a heavy metal band to be elected to the Virginia Senate, as far as we know, of course? Yeah, that, that's a great question. Thank you for um, leaning in on that part of my identity. Um, I, I'll tell you what, it's really nice to not only be someone who played in metal bands for 12 years to be elected, but who took those lessons that actually come from music about grassroots promotion and building up a scene and understanding how to connect with people who are very different from you, and at the same time, understanding in politics how to use the stage to connect with an audience so that you're energizing them, they energize you in return, And if you want your band to be successful, you have to put yourself out there and make yourself accessible to people. And you can't just be aloof. And that's one of the things that you learn in heavy metal 
And meanwhile, you know, that's been the bread and butter for how we've won four campaigns now, which is that just old school door-to-door campaigning. And one thing that you hear in metal all the time is bands that have been around for a long time talk about getting back to their roots. Mm -hmm. All my campaigns have focused on getting back to our roots in governance, like infrastructure, like feeding hungry kids, like protecting land. Because if you deliver on the basics, the people are really going to respond well to it. And that's what carried us over the finish line. The other part of your identity, of course, is key here as well, that you're the first ever openly trans state senator in in the South. As you mentioned, you've been in politics a a long time now. But your your gender identity is always part of the discussion when you are a candidate in a way that, that isn't with cisgendered politicians. So how does that sit with you? Yeah, I'm a transgender woman who has the most comprehensive plan of any state legislator you're going to meet on how to fix Route 28 here in Manassas Park in Yorkshire. I'm the transgender woman who passed 41 bills into law, all with bipartisan support, including 12 bills to feed hungry kids. And one of those bills, HB 5113, now led the city of Manassas and the city of Manassas Park to provide universal free school breakfast and lunch for every single kid. And yeah, I'm also the trans woman who passed the bill to ban the gay and trans panic defense because a 15-year-old out student constituent of mine from Manassas Park High School sent me an email in the summer of 2020 asking me if I could get that done when I realized in that moment that he was living with the same fear in 2020 that I was living with as a closeted freshman in high school in 1998 when Matthew Shepard was murdered. And so... You know, I never say I'm trans, but I always say I'm trans and trans people are not a monolith and we care Mm -hmm. about a lot of things. Some of the things we care about are things like infrastructure and things like, you know, quality of life issues. And we have issues that are unique and specific to our communities. And so, you know, as a newspaper reporter turned legislator, I always said I have to know a lot about a lot to be able to do my job. And that skill set was directly transferable. And when you're trans, you also realize that you're very often the only person who's like you in most of the rooms that you walk into. And so you need to have the empathy of understanding for other people who are the only person like them who are in a room. And at the same time, you also have to be able to show and demonstrate a lot of grace for people who might say things that are wrong or sometimes maliciously wrong or sometimes just because they don't know. Your Republican opponent, Bill Wolf, as part of his platform, promised to bar trans athletes from competing in school sports teams. What is your message to them today? That they should be able to be themselves, be who they are, and be that well and thrive because of who they are, not despite it. Bottom line on all of this right now is we have a system in place that works. The governor of Virginia tried to upend that system in a way that we believe breaks the law, by the way. He does not have the authority to do what he is doing, and we'll see him in court over that, no question. At the same time, Virginia is the only state in the country where the governor cannot run for re-election after their first term. They have to sit out a term. And so the reality is Glenn Youngkin will not be president of the United States. He will have the next two years to continue serving as governor of Virginia, and he has a choice to make 
he can work with legislators like me on fixing roads and feeding kids and having real deliverables, or he can single out and stigmatize the very people he's elected to serve. And if he does that, then that Democratic brick wall that he ran into in the state Senate is now the Democratic brick wall he's going to run into in the entire General Assembly. If he wants to work with me to fix roads and feed kids, I'll drive down to Richmond tomorrow. If he wants to pick on trans kids, then he's going to have to deal with me, and I'm not going to be too diplomatic in the way that I approach it. The fact of the matter is we have so much we have to get done on quality of life issues and picking on trans kids and trying to turn back civil rights. That is not part of that agenda. Danica, I appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you for the invitation. Appreciate it. Danica Rome is a state senator-elect in Virginia. We reached her in Manassas. Anna Green is having a big year. Her first book of poetry came out in April and has received a lot of acclaim. And today she won the Governor General's Literary Award for Poetry for Xanax Cowboy. The $25,000 prize is administered by the Canada Council for the Arts, and winning it is a huge moment. Not just for Hannah, but also for her dad. His name is Chris Green, but to the internet he's best known as Hannah's dad which is the message emblazoned on the T-shirt he has been proudly wearing to Hannah's speaking engagements since the spring when a photo of him in the shirt first went viral. We reached Hannah and Chris Green in Winnipeg. Congrats, Hannah. Has it has it sunk in yet? Um, slowly, slowly sinking <laughs> yes. in. Yeah, um, yeah. I found it a little bit b- beforehand, so I'm pretty bewildered for a day or two. But uh, yeah, it feels very, very real today. And, and congrats to you just by association, Chris. It's a good day to be Hannah's dad. <laughs> it sounds like you think it's always a good day to be Hannah's dad. Uh, I have to ask you, are you wearing the, the famous T-shirt? I certainly am. Did you wear it to work? I did. I did a. Um, I actually wore it um, under a sweater today because everyone at work knew, I guess I announced to everyone that, they, that this might be happening. So um, I wore a sweater over it and revealed that they know why I wear the shirt. So um, so I wore it and before I made the big announcement at work this morning <laughs> that uh, my daughter was a governor general's recipient. So pretty big uh, news. And where did this shirt come from, Hannah? Um, I made it for my dad when I was about 12. It's just this like Aww. purple. It's, it's purple. I don't know why I went with purple. Well, it's a great, it's the it's best color. Tied. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then, like it's just tie dye. And then I just wrote in magic marker, like just like, Hannah's dad on the front I guess I just it wasn't like for Father's Day or like anything I just like I guess I did I just decided to make it and um yeah I'm not sure how my dad felt when he first received it I, you know what I I, I love tie-dye shirts I made one when I I think I made my first one when I was about 10 at school <laughs> and I wore it every day for you know as long as a 10 year old could so that's what, what about six six months I heard um uh, Hannah that your mom is in on this too not with a t-shirt though yeah so my mom has a purse I made. Um, it's like it's it's this like weird burlap fabric. Um, the strap is like the elastic waistband from sweatpants, and it's safety pinned onto the. I'm using like quotation marks purse, and then I put, wrote number one mom on the front in like um, 
like sparkly letters and I used to be like why aren't you wearing your purse like we went out so she would have her regular purse and then this one with her because it couldn't it wasn't stable enough to hold anything which is like the kind of decorative so yeah yeah, so she got that so your parents are are clearly always in your corner let's talk about the work that won you this 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 honor Xanax cowboy yeah your personal experiences are are detailed and, and brought you to write this this long form poem. So tell our listeners a little bit about it. Who is Xanax Cowboy? Um yeah, so Xanax Cowboy, um sort of looking at the character itself, um, is very much just sort of like a, a persona I created um in a way to to protect myself and be able to tell a story without it one hundred percent being my story. Um in poetry there's such a push for like like authenticity and like vulnerability. And um, I really wanted to achieve that in the book. And I sort of needed this like alter ego, whatever you want to call it to, um, to, to do that. And like, you know, and then for the, the book itself, I'm really just looking at like the romanticization of addiction and mental illness um, through the romanticization of the, of the wild west um, and sort of like the, the loneliness of the cowboy. This uh, just share as much as you can about y- your personal story and the struggles you had. Yeah, so I was doing my master's um, in English at Concordia in Montreal, and um, I was so just so lonely and um, isolated there. So I would say that that's when I started writing Xanax Cowboy. Um, it was sort of just like, you know, if you don't want to be lonely, like pretend you're a cowboy. They're meant to be alone. I know, Chris, you, you haven't read the whole thing. But you have read some of it. Clearly, you all have such a close relationship, and you're so joyful uh, as we're talking. But in, you know that there, everyone can relate to struggles, individual struggles, certainly family struggles as well. But what was it like for you, being Hannah's dad, proud dad, reading her poem? Well, I, I think for some of it, like I said, it's we didn't find out that Hannah was a Xanax cowboy until. Pretty much till she graduated and was back and was actually writing the book. And, mm-hmm. and so, because, you know, parents are, you know, kind of moved out at a young age and she's very independent, you know, she has been since a very young age. When we did find out, you know, at first you're going, wow, I can't believe that I missed that um, because there are signals that come up. And then when you find out that this person who is so super and so successful and so driven actually has problems and is actually, you know, in, in trouble. Um, it was it was difficult. It was something that I said, "Wow!" And and so getting an understanding of that, and then and then reading about some of the things in the books, it's a hard read. It's hard to say, "Wow!" I can't believe that someone was feeling that way or someone was going through that, um, you know, and, and still able to do all the things that Hannah does. And what ultimately do you hope readers, because there will be a whole new audience who learn about it now because of this award. That's a great thing, obviously, apart from the recognition, I'm sure. So what do you hope that wider audience takes away from it? I guess I hope they just enjoy it um, and enjoy reading it um, and enjoy the humor in it. Um, I know like the book is ha- handles very dark subject matter, um, but it's done with a lot of humor. So just yes. kind of realizing like yeah. that this is a way that you can tell this story. And also the, in the story, that like there's no real arc where the character gets better, and that's also okay. But um, for anyone, obviously, who's gone through any sort of experience similar to mine, like even in the slightest little bit, like if they read a line or a metaphor and it just hits right for them, like that, that's kind of what what I want because that's what I always love. Like when I read a poem and like a yeah. line just like speaks to me, it can like really really help me. 
Hannah, Chris, thank you, and congratulations again. Thank you. Take care. Yeah, that's great. Thank you. Hannah Green is the author of the Governor General's Literary Award-winning book of poetry, Xanax Cowboy. Chris Green is Hannah's dad. We reached them both in Winnipeg. Next story takes us to the International Space Station. I mean the, I mean, nuts. Now, I did that on purpose, just like all my other stumbles and mispronunciations, but imagine if that was an actual accident that I had in front of the entire As It Happens audience. I would be very embarrassed, my public mistake floating around and around in my head. Our next story takes us to the International Space Station. International Space Station. Space Station. Space Station. International Space Station. Nuts. But the thing about radio is any mistake has a brief life. I make the wrong sound. We all hear me do that. And then it's gone. Tomorrow is a new day. That is not the case for Jasmine Mogbelli and Laurel O'Hara. Two astronauts aboard the International Space Station, Space Station, who made a minor mistake that is floating around and around in their heads, but also floating around and around in space right in front of them. As we told you, on November 1st, the two astronauts completed the fourth ever all-female spacewalk outside the ISS. It was a series of wins with one loss, their bag of tools, which drifted away while they were doing some work. All they could do was try to move on. Except that the tool bag won't. It is in orbit just in front of the space station where it will continue to be for days. Apparently you can see it, the tool bag, from Earth with binoculars or a small telescope. And the astronauts can see it just by looking out a window. The comrade they consigned to die in space, always in eye shot, always accusing them. It's like if Edgar Allan Poe wrote science fiction. That one day their mistake will disappear from the sky. But for them, for now... There is no safe space. It's a well-known fact that not all marriages end happily, but in the Philippines they rarely end at all, at least on paper. It's the only country in the world outside of the Vatican where divorce has not been legalized. But now a bill before the Senate is opening up the possibility of change. Maviv Miliora is an advocate with Divorce Pilipinas Coalition. We reached her in Paranaque City, Philippines. Maviv, the fact that, that you and others who've been pushing for this are closer than ever to bringing this change to the Philippines, should we take from that that, that most people there are on board with divorce becoming legal now? Um... There's 53% of uh, the respondents in a survey that are favoring for divorce. So there's still 37 that are anti-divorce and the rest are undecided. So a 53% um, percentage of pro-divorce is actually a good number for a country that is very conservative. Have you seen it change over the years to build to this point? Yes. Um, previous to 
me being an advocate leader, mm-hmm. um, a lot of um, Filipinos are just simply staying quiet and not talking about it because you know it's it's a taboo in our country to be in a broken family and usually the blame would be on um, the abandoned abandoned spouse so that is really unfair mm-hmm. what are people doing when they don't want to be married anymore because whether it's it's allowed on paper or not not everyone is staying together clearly so how are people working around that oh well whether there's divorce or not, couples are really separating. So they would just move on with their lives um, while legally binded with the marriage contract and they would start their own families, maybe one or two families for that matter. Um, It just go on and on. And it's very difficult for us because um, there are legal impediments that you are still married and there are things that you cannot do. There are so many restrictions what impacts does it have and and you know from from experience because you've been separated from your husband but you haven't been able mm-hmm. to get a, a legal divorce what kind of situation does that leave you and others in oh well i i wanted to buy a property and according to the requirements of the philippine housing program you i need to secure the signature of my ex-husband so i'm you know for for people like me, sometimes we don't have communication and we don't communicate with our ex-husbands, ex-spouses anymore. So how how are we going to to secure that signature? And for abusive cases, um, of course they don't want to meet their abuser and those who cause trauma to their lives and their children. You really want to cut it off, but you are still binded legally. So that's that's a very big uh, problem for Filipinos. And and for many people, it keeps them in in a situation or a relationship that can be dangerous to them, which is what which is what you were getting at there. Yes, you know it's not good for the mental health of of that particular separated Filipino. And does this does the current law apply to everyone? Or just Catholics? Um, it's just for the Christians. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have a divorce for our Muslim brothers and sisters and our Filipino indigenous people. Even in other countries, Catholic people can divorce their spouses if the marriage is not working anymore. Why not in our country? This time around, in, in this push, activists such as yourself have been framing this as a human rights issue. Some of what you've outlined is, is clearly the, the reason for that. But how do you think that has helped? Do you think it, it has changed perception in your country because it's been framed that way? Uh, yeah. Um, you know, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights provides that men and women, without any limitation to the race, nationality, or religion, have the right to marry and start a family. So they are entitled to equal rights to the marriage, during the marriage, and its dissolution. So if you have the freedom to get married, why don't you have the freedom to get out of it? It's like a contract. If it's not working anymore, you can have the option to end it. So now that, that it is before the Senate, this bill, what more needs to happen for it to actually pass? Um, it's still, um, we are still waiting for the second reading. 
wherein some of the lawmakers would be able to support or not support the bill. And it would also give a chance to have a debate, mm-hmm. okay, to debate on on the divorce bill. This has been the farthest, um, the farthest process that this mm-hmm. divorce bill has um, has accomplished so far. That gives you hope that it's going to happen this time. Yes, definitely. We are very, very hopeful. And because there are so many supporters of divorce, especially in the Senate now, unlike before. How would it change your life if you could have that divorce document? Oh, uh, it would be easier for me to start procuring properties Mm -hmm. without the worry that that my ex-husband would uh, claim a share for that property because of the conjugal property law, I would be able to change, revert back to my maiden name and remove his family name. I think it would be a gift to the second generation wherein they would be able to um, think twice in marrying and they would have to make sure that they are getting married to the right person. And if ever they are already in an abusive um marriage mm-hmm. they have the option to be free and have a divorce mm-hmm. and like being stuck in a in a marriage or in a traumatic past so it's actually a gift to filipinos maviv i appreciate your time thank you all right thank you neil Maviv Miliora is an advocate with Divorce Pilipinas Coalition. We reached her in Paranaque City, Philippines. Hello, I'm Jess Milton. For 15 years, I produced The Vinyl Cafe with the late, great Stuart McLean. Every week, more than 2 million people tuned in to hear funny, fictional, feel-good stories about Dave and his family. We're excited to welcome you back to the warm and welcoming world of The Vinyl Cafe with our new podcast, Backstage at The Vinyl Cafe. Each week, we'll share two hilarious stories by Stuart, and for the first time ever, I'll tell you what it was like behind the scenes. Subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. Every November, in the small English town of Ottery, St. Mary, people participate in a tradition that dates back to the 17th century, a fun, entertaining event in which the locals run through the streets carrying flaming barrels of tar on their backs. What merriment. That age-old, weird, dangerous custom is just one of countless age-old, weird, dangerous customs carried on in communities all over the British Isles every year. And there's only one person who knows about all of them, folklorist Doc Rowe. Since the 1960s, he has attended hundreds of those events as a participant and archivist. Now there's a push to ensure that his massive catalogue of folk traditions is preserved for posterity. We reached Doc Rowe in London. Doc, obviously, uh, I asked the question why a lot, but this, this one's different. Why would anyone want to strap a burning barrel to their back? Yeah, I mean, there are lots of, rather like many of these uh, events in, in the British Isles, there are lots of 
legends, if you like, mm-hmm. that are uh, uh, frequently not based on any kind of fact. In Ottery, they, they, they seem to think it was to do with the, um, the Armada coming up the coast and uh, a, a young man running with a, uh, a camel inside a barrel. Mm. Uh, but unfortunately, the barrel had been used in a butcher's shop, so it was lined with straw, and it ignited. Oh. And so as he got closer and closer to the uh, uh, the beacon, uh, it was blazing on his back. So mm. there is well, that's one story. Other stories, it was a, a contest between the two, two villages of Ottery and St. Mary. But we'll never know, as they say. Oh, but, well, as part of your work, do you, do you try everything? Have you tried this? Well, I've, I've run, I did carry one once. Um, it's quite, quite exhilarating because yeah, the faster you run with it on your shoulders, of course, the flames leap out the back, so you're quite well protected. Uh, exhilarating, it, it, terrifying, I mean, it's different for everyone, I guess. Well, as I say, what, what's uh, interesting, or, or you know, obviously obvious, I suppose, is that the people in front of you step out of the way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I bet. But, I bet. The only, the only protection the uh, men use is, is they have um, potato sacks folded over and over. But my, my hands and wrists are, are very nicely scarred from just taking photographs of the event. And um, it started, actually, I, I was interested in traditional song in my native Devon. Uh, I always say I was rather uh, disappointed or angered by the BBC because they were telling me all these things had died out. And yet I knew a few miles over on Dartmoor there were singers and dancers that uh, were performing and, and speaking a dialect, you know. Yeah, you wanted, you, you wanted to document, you wanted to make sure everyone knew that, that these existed. But I never consciously set out to it. I, mm-hmm. I so enjoyed and, and um, you know, say disappointed by the media telling me it had all died out. And so I started documenting it. I bought a, a tape recorder very early on. Uh, and it was until probably the late 70s that people started acknowledging that I had this enormous collection of material that uh, had not been, you know, not been done, really. Wait, when you talk about your archive, just ha- how vast is it? Uh, well, it was three furniture van moves in 2010, wow. moving it from Sheffield, where it was based, up to Whitby. Uh, it was something like 26 tons. That's including a few filing cabinets, of course. 20,000 uh, books, 4,000 cassette tapes, 3,500 hours of, of reel-to-reel uh, audio that you've recorded? At least, yeah. Wow. yeah. L- let's, talk, let's talk a little bit more and talk about some of the other events so our listeners can imagine them. Uh, and I've certainly seen some of these as I was reading up for this conversation. Take us to Scotland and the Burryman. Well, the Burryman is an extraordinary thing. I mean, it mm-hmm. really is... Um, uh, a man actually puts himself forward to the ferry fair committee to 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 um, do this arduous task of walking through the streets of South Queensbury, uh, encased in burrs. You know the burdock seeds, yeah. rather like nature's velcro, and it takes about an hour or so to to dress him, um, and then he goes out on the streets at nine o'clock, and he finishes up somewhere around about seven o'clock at night having walked a, a good nine-mile route, quite painful as well. The only part of his anatomy uh, uncovered is his hands. And he, um, he collects money, of course, but mm-hmm. also uh, partakes in unmeasured glasses of whiskey. Well, you'd need to, I would imagine, to be walking around covered in burrs all day. Yeah, um, and uh, I have the um, extraordinary honour of... Um, 
I've outlived a lot of the local people that knew how to dress him, and of course I've witnessed it over the years. I'm now, I think, I'm now the fifteenth year of being the official dresser. Oh. It I must be hard for you too. You, you, there are lots of cuts yeah. involved. Uh, yes, uh, unfortunately, there are now four glasses on the trays of whiskey, so uh, I, I have that ordeal of um, sharing the whiskeys. I'm wondering how you feel, Doc, about the interest there is in you now. We know that a team of filmmakers are making a documentary about you and the vast archive we talked about. There's some fundraising to help you digitize uh, all, all of your recordings. So how are you yeah, feeling cool. about being uh, the center of attention? Yeah, very uncomfortable, actually. I'm, <laughs> I'm more used to being on the other side of the lens. But, um, uh, yeah, they, they've done all right. I mean, I, I, I kind of welcomed it in the end because it might show, bring attention to the collection. Um, but uh, currently, as you probably know, they've done a crowdfunding to digitize, mm-hmm. initially digitize material for their film. Um, but it's now gone into uh, over 160% of the... And I think there was forty thousand pounds today. We've got, and they needed twenty-five. I mean, I, I when they when they suggested it, I smiled sweetly and said, "Yes, well, let's see." I wonder, though, you know, uh, this started. You said because you were annoyed that that they were saying that the, these things had died out or weren't happening. So you wanted to prove people wrong. So now that yeah. people are all in with you, um, you know, what do you what do you want people to take away from these stories and these rituals? They are to do with people, you know, celebrating themselves. It's a, a living, organic event, and it changes. It has to change for various reasons. So this is but, about uh, setting the record straight for you, but also celebrating people for, think, for their investment think, in their culture. Yeah, I mean, I think foremost now, I mean, I, it's a responsibility. I, I I know I've got this stuff, and I owe it to... Um, you know, generations before and after. Uh, And it is a celebration of those people that have kept it going. Doc, thank you for your time. My pleasure. Doc Rowe is a British folklorist. We reached him in London. Israel Defense Forces say Hamas has lost control of northern Gaza. That announcement follows an interview earlier this week in which Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu said, quote, I think Israel, for an indefinite period, will have the overall security responsibility in Gaza because we've seen what happens when we don't have it, unquote. But at a press conference in Japan today, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken told reporters that Israel cannot reoccupy the territory. The reality is that there may be Uh, a need for some transition period uh, at the end of the conflict. But it is imperative that um, the Palestinian people uh, be central to to governance uh, in uh, in Gaza and uh, in the West Bank as well, Uh, and that, again, uh, we don't see uh, a reoccupation. And what I've heard from Israeli leaders is that they have no intent to reoccupy Gaza. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken reacting to Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's comments about what a post-war Gaza might look like. A lot of people are asking questions about that. But as far as Gilad Sher is concerned, Benjamin Netanyahu has no business answering those questions. 
Mr. Sher was the chief of staff to former Israeli Prime Minister Ehud Barak and a senior negotiator at the Camp David Summit in 2000 and the Taba Peace Talks in 2001. We reached him in Caesarea, Israel. Gilad, we've heard from Benjamin Netanyahu, we've heard from Antony Blinken. What do you believe the Israeli government's intentions are when it comes to Gaza? I don't believe that uh, Israel has any aspirations of re-governing Gaza. Once again, we left Gaza in uh, August 2005. Uh, We disengaged uh, totally, completely, unilaterally. And I do agree with uh, Secretary Blinken that there would be a need for a transition period uh, to a Gaza without Hamas. Mm-hmm. Of course, we need to eradicate Hamas. We need to uh, um, weaken significantly the capabilities of this terrorist organization. You have been critical of Benjamin Netanyahu in the past and certainly before these attacks. Uh, and you've argued that, that his administration has strengthened Hamas in Gaza. Can you describe to our listeners how you believe that happened? I can, of course. Uh, Yes, I have been critical of uh, the whole policy of uh, deepening the schism between uh, the West Bank and the Gaza Strip, between Fatah and Hamas, in a way that would weaken the Palestinian Authority and strengthen Hamas by uh, providing them Uh, funding from Qatari money and Iranian money and allow them, allowing them to um, strengthen themselves in in a way that uh, resulted in the uh, massacre of the uh, 7th of October. Um, This was a tragic way of um, managing the conflict because the conflict manages us. So uh, instead of taking those decisions that would uh, would allow a leadership to lead towards uh, a two-state for two people resolution or, or even a reality without a full-fledged comprehensive agreement instead of doing that managing the conflict by uh, by nurturing hamas as the governance power in gaza and weakening the palestinian authority would uh, would leave things as they as they were supposed to stay in a status quo without moving towards a political horizon. So, in your view, this was all laid, laying the groundwork to prevent a two-state solution from ever becoming a reality. I do believe so. You've said uh, that whatever Israel has to do in this moment, Benjamin Netanyahu should not be the one leading it. I don't think he's going to resign. Uh, you may know better than, than I, but if if there is that sentiment there, what would be the mechanism to make a change? Well, you know, there's a public sentiment that uh, of, of very broad parts of the Israeli public and the Israeli society that uh, this government um, failed and uh, and should uh, should step down from uh, from governance and we've seen we've seen already uh, in the past in history that uh, that during uh, bloody wars and bloody conflicts such as the uh, the may 1940 Neville chamberlain stepping down as prime minister of uh, the united kingdom and churchill coming in and um, i don't think that this is out of the question for the Israeli public and for the Israeli civil society at this particular moment.
So if we use that comparison, that description, who would be Churchill in this scenario for you? That's a big question. <laughs> I don't think I have the answer. But, but a government that's shown so uh, so myriad of de deficiencies and uh, imperfections in its um, and in capabilities, and it needs to be replaced. The importance is uh, to understand what what is the order of priority now, and I think that the the um, once uh, the mission of um, fighting the the Hamas uh, terrorist group and uh, and the Islamic Jihad etc. Is, uh, is over, I believe that there is a new order that should be put in, um, in the whole region and including in, um, in internally in Israel. And the way it would play out depends on, on what the public will, uh, will, will decide. You've, you've been close to peace before. You've, you've been in rooms uh, where it's been within reach. How do you feel about the chances for peace and that two-state solution now? How far away is it? Look, the narratives are, uh, are getting uh, harsher and harsher on, on, in the respective constituencies, uh, Israeli and Palestinian alike. But I think that the, if we switch from conflict management to conflict resolution, Perhaps the pragmatist actors uh, and and uh, the reforms in the P in the Palestinian Authority and a planning of uh, unified governance of the Gaza and the West Bank and perhaps a regional conference and a step by step moving forwards towards a uh, a reality of two states even in the absence of a full fledged comprehensive agreement that in itself could could change the reality in the Middle East. What do you say, though, to people who cannot see hope right now? Once this is over, there should be hope. With no hope, you know, there's a saying that hope is the last thing that dies uh, in a man. And I believe that uh, without hope in the Middle East, without a political horizon, uh, we are bound to... Uh, continue fighting one another for generations. I, do, I wouldn't like to see that for my children, for their children, for my grandchildren, and for their grandchildren. So uh, you know, it's very, it's very difficult in times of uh, of suffering and bereavement and bloodshed, as the one that we've, we mm -hmm. we are experiencing now, to look at the uh, at the horizon and see some glimpse of hope there. But we have to because all conflicts eventually come to an end. And ours is, no, uh, um, is not that different from, uh, from others, despite the complexity of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Gilad, thank you for your time. Thank you so much. Gilad Sher was the chief of staff and policy coordinator to Israeli Prime Minister Ehud Barak and a senior negotiator at the Camp David Summit and Tabat Talks. We reached him in Caesarea, Israel. This morning, some unusual passengers boarded a flight home from Washington, D.C. The three pandas were packed into crates at the National Zoo and put on a flight to China. And Mei Shang, Tian Tian, and Xiao Qi Ji weren't just zoo favorites. 
They were a symbol of cooperation between the United States and China and part of a longstanding tradition that began in the Nixon era during a thaw in relations, relations that have been somewhat frosty of late. Here is Zoo Director Brandy Smith speaking today. Over 50 years ago, uh, Mrs. Nixon formally welcomed giant pandas Ling Ling and Ching Ching to the National Zoo. 23 years ago, Mei Shang and Tian Tian arrived. Um, they are an iconic animal for the zoo, for the District of Columbia, um, and for our country as well. Um, and there are billions of people who have admired, celebrated, loved our giant pandas um, and have participated in their conservation. Um, we are honored to and grateful to our Chinese partners, including our colleagues at the China Conservation and Research Center for the Giant Panda, the China Wildlife Conservation Association, and our research partners at the Chengdu Research Base of Giant Panda Breeding. Um, everyone keeps asking me how I feel, uh, and this is a hard morning. Um, it's been a hard week, and it's been a hard morning. But ultimately, our focus today is on the safe, transport of these animals to China um, and it's a moment of joy because this is one more step in 50 years of a successful giant panda conservation program um, and hopefully the beginning of 50 more years of successful giant panda conservation. So please know that the future is bright for giant pandas we remain committed to our program, and we look forward to celebrating with all of you when pandas can return to D.C. U.S. National Zoo Director Brandy Smith speaking at a farewell for the zoo's three giant pandas. So far, China has made no commitment to send more pandas to the United States. C.S. Richardson's novel, All the Color in the World, readers follow Henry, a Canadian boy born during the First World War, who longs to be an artist. Well, they, they sort of follow him. They also follow Mr. Richardson himself across a series of vignettes that traverse time and space and much of recorded human history. The result is a book the Scotiabank Giller Prize jury calls, quote, a masterclass in how to paint an entire world, unquote. That is a fitting description for a book by an author who started out as a book designer, and next week it just might earn him $100,000. The winner of Canada's Richest Literary Prize will be announced on Monday evening, and with tonight's reading from the shortlist, here's C.S. Richardson. Thomas Eakins, one of Victorian America's preeminent artists, specializes in portraits of leading figures in the arts, sciences, and medicine. Known for his realism, Eakins strives to capture a subject's unvarnished individuality, preferring to paint his subjects in their workaday environments. Eakins' The Gross Clinic, painted in 1875, depicts Philadelphia surgeon and academic Samuel Gross, bloodied scalpel in hand, overseeing a procedure in a lecture theater crowded with medical students. Huge in size, dense in population, Eakins labors for almost a year to complete the painting. Faithful to the subject's profession is the rendering of both the somber, dimly lit theater and the attire of Dr. Gross and his team. Ink black formality, 
from top to toe. The Gross Clinic is a portrait of medicine as diligence, competence, scholarship. Yet at the time, the practice is as likely to be associated with miracle elixirs and quackery, a doctor's traditional tailoring meant to reflect the seriousness and skill of the practitioner, more often inspires mistrust and fear, more undertaker than healer. At best, a brocade waistcoat and pearl-pinned cravat might hide the grislier stains of his work. Meanwhile, science, dressed as white-smocked laboratory researchers, is busy unraveling the mysteries of infection, the cause and care of disease, how the human body actually works. So too is the ministering nurse, busying herself in snowy white uniform, dabbing an anxious brow among other sort of tasks, or holding a clammy, terrified hand. From alabaster to chalk, medical white comes to represent hygiene, health, and hope. Thus, 14 years later, Eakins paints the Agnew Clinic. Again, the scene is a medical school operating theater, this time with good Dr. Agnew conducting a partial mastectomy and holding his own scalpel as baton. Setting and staging are familiar, but the house lights have come up. There's been a costume change. The theater is bright to the point of glaring. Agnew and his assistants virtually glow in their white coats, white aprons, and white smocks. And yet, for all its advancements, medicine remains a dark art, an inscrutable practice that can make a patient feel uneasy, even threatened. The new wardrobe does little to help. Nerves still jitter, sweat still dampens the forehead, blood pressures still rise when one hears, the doctor will see you now. So much so that the medical profession coins a term, white coat syndrome. C.S. Richardson reading from his Giller-nominated novel, All the Color in the World. The winner of the Scotiabank Giller Prize will be announced on Monday evening on CBC TV, CBC Gem, and on CBC Radio 1. There are not many things you can get the heads of major media organizations to agree on, but there is one thing. It's that major media organizations are in trouble. Oh, and that they're losing the public trust they once took for granted. Tonight on Ideas, you'll hear leaders from the Toronto Star, Global News, and the CBC on stage in front of a live audience trying to explain what is going wrong. People don't believe their own eyes. Not only do they not believe our eyes, they don't believe their own eyes. And, and with some of the stuff that's already been mentioned, they're right. I mean, there's so much intentional disinformation. And there, there's so much of it. Um, and it's emotional. And people respond to that emotion. Whereas there is less of journalism because there's less journalists than there used to be. And they're in fewer places than they used to be. And they're, they're stretched more because the news cycle is such as it is, right? So they're working so hard to be able to cover all these things. And disinformation does not need to fact check. It doesn't need to get anything legal. It has no accountability responsibility often. And you're fighting um, against that. So definitely journalism does need to do everything it can to continue to earn it. Again, I think we also need to look beyond that and figure out, okay, but, but then how do we get things to them when news is blocked? How do we get when news is throttled? How do we get beyond people? uncertainty about their own account. I mean, what, what, they, what they themselves see in here. That was Irene Gentle, a vice president at the Toronto Star. Hear how Canadian media bosses are trying to make sense of dwindling public trust tonight on Ideas. Oh, look what you made me do. 
This song from Taylor Swift's Reputation era can be interpreted as an attack on her critics. Her thesis is that they should look what they made her do, i.e. disappear from the public eye for a year. But six years later, Ms. Swift should perhaps consider looking at what she could be said to have made people do, specifically superfans in Argentina. Dozens of fans have been camping outside River Plate Stadium in Buenos Aires to make sure they get as close to the stage as possible when Ms. Swift's Eras Tour arrives there on Thursday, and they have been camping there for five months. Diego Aruisha went to the camp and wrote about it for Pitchfork. We reached him in Buenos Aires. Diego, as you were speaking to these fans, what did they tell you? Who has spent the longest time camping out in one of these tents for Taylor Swift? Yeah, so they probably already like broke the record uh, as we get like more closer to the shows. Mm-hmm. Um, but the one that had like the highest hours had around 300 hours, which is an astounding number, if you ask me. 300 hours. Yeah, that's a lot of time to wait in line, to wait for anything, even your favorite star. But what is the ultimate goal? Yeah, so the people camping, uh, all of them already have tickets. They have tickets for the ground floor. And yeah, the goal is to get as close to the stage as possible. Okay, so they know they're going to the show. They just Mm -hmm. really want to be close to Taylor Swift as she performs. Exactly, yeah. And what were the reasons they gave you about why that was important to them? Sometimes being further away as a concert goer, I will say, you get a better perspective on the show. But what are they telling you about why they want to be so close? Yeah, I definitely agree with that uh, in terms of like the distance. Yeah, um, not too far. I only but, been like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, not too far. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, it's just uh, be. I think it's just like being close to her, like as close as possible. I don't know, like showcasing like the passion of like being there mm-hmm. and singing all of the songs and like the possibility that. Taylor may look at their way, basically. <laughs> I assume that you have more chances if you're, like, close to the stage. Yeah. Can you imagine if she stopped by the encampment? I mean, yeah, it's be- possible, I right? Think, uh, I don't know. That would be, I don't know about chaos? Like, security and such. <laughs> for, yeah, it would be chaos. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How many people were there? Uh, yeah, so there was, like, four tents, and each of the tents had around 60 people or so. So they're, like, in constant rotation. And um, when you say rotation, it's because there is... There is quite a system here. I mean, I would say it's more complicated, I think, than even getting tickets to the show, which is complicated for for concerts of this size, as we saw with Taylor and and Beyonce as well. But what is the system that is in place? There's like two main organizers that have been there, like even before uh, tickets went on sale, that they went there and like put their first few tents. Uh, And there are like a couple uh, like admins, quote unquote administrators for like each of the tents. Uh, so there's this external spreadsheet with everyone in there and people like either like the admins or like the organizers uh, keep the hours of each person in check. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's like, OK, yeah, this person had like 10 hours this week. Um, and Some of the folks are in charge of like keeping track of all of it. And yeah, the higher you are on the list, the closer you're going to be to like being one of the first in line to like. Uh, enter the show. It's 10-hour shifts for everyone? Is that the maximum? Uh, so the minimum hours per month at the moment, uh, according to what people told me for the article, is around 60 hours. Okay. Uh, just to like maintain your, your spot in like, the spreadsheet. You are encouraged to do more if you want, uh, and that will like put you higher on the list. But mm-hmm. a lot of people I talk to just like do the minimum. 
Sure. Understandable. And then there's also a subset of people who will do this for you for a fee. Not you, but the Swifties. Yeah, exactly. Um, there's like a lot of people, even some like individual folks who offer their services on Twitter. How much are they charging? <laughs> uh, so it was around 700 pesos per hour, uh, which is roughly two dollars or so okay uh, which sounds cheap but there's okay. like hyperinflation and like a lot of things here sure. uh, so locally it's like different what's the age range of these swifties what are they doing when they're not doing this are they students yeah so it was around like on the younger side uh so like one of the rules is just like everyone has to be at least 18 18 is like the legal age here in argentina um and the people I talk to are like between 20 and 21. Most most of the people I talk to also go to college. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, whenever they're in a tent, they're like studying or like catching up on things. Other people, somebody I was interviewing was doing friendship bracelets at of the course. moment. Yeah. <laughs> of course, yeah. <laughs> so they're keeping busy in the tents. But what do their families think of all this? Yeah, so there's like... Um, at least with, with the people I talked to, there were like different uh, reactions. Uh, folks were supportive, even if they were like, okay, so you're gonna be like camping on the street. Yeah, for how long? Five months, okay, sure. Um, others were like, okay, as long, as long as you don't fail like your college test, you're fine. <laughs> okay, um, but let's underline that again. We've said it before, but we'll say it again. Five months this has been going on. Not a week, yeah. not a week before the show, five months before the show. And there was one particular uh, you know, person that was like, yeah, we prefer uh, to be anonymous for the piece because like my father doesn't know basically that I come here. You had to conceal uh, her identity because her dad didn't know. <laughs> yeah. Are you going to be there for the first of the shows on Thursday night? Uh, no, no, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not like a, a, a Swifty. Yeah. Um, but so just, it's not like I was, I was yeah. planning to like attend to the show. I just I just have a feeling she's gonna she's gonna come out and talk to the people or give them a shout out at the show maybe. <laughs> yeah, that will become like I don't know. Like, I feel like people will just talk about that on Twitter for like a whole week. <laughs> just that. We'll see, Diego. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Take care. You too. Diego Aruisha is a contributor to Pitchfork, where you can find his article about the Taylor Swift fans who have been camping out for the Eras Tour since June. He's in Buenos Aires. You've been listening to the As It Happens podcast. Our show can be heard Monday to Friday on CBC Radio 1, following the world at 6. You can also listen to the show online at cbc.ca slash AIH or on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. I'm Neil Kirksal. And I'm Chris Howden. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.